Now this morning I invite you to take your Bibles please and turn with me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts chapter 2 and we're going to read verses 41 through 47. Acts chapter 2 beginning at verse 41 and then continuing to Acts 47. 41 through 47. Will you all please stand in honor of the word of God. You follow along as I read. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with a sense of awe and many wonders and miracles were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to one another as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds to your truth. Give us insight and understanding in what you want your church to be. I pray that you would fill us with a knowledge of your will and give us the uh, desire to obey and to follow you fully. In the matchless name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In one of my uh, favorite uh, Peanuts cartoons... Uh, Linus is uh, sitting in his living room, he's in an overstuffed chair, and he's enjoying his favorite TV program. Uh, He doesn't have a a care in the world, he's just enjoying watching his favorite program. Well, pretty soon, Lucy walks in, and she disrupts his calm. In fact, she comes in and she says, I want you to change the TV channels. Linus looks at Lucy and says, Who do you think you are? Who gives you the power or the authority to demand that I change the TV channel? And Lucy looked him right in the eye and she said, These five fingers. Individually, they are nothing. But when I curl them up like this, They form a weapon that is terrible to behold. What channel did you say you wanted to watch, says Linus? Pretty soon he hands the remote to Lucy and he walks out of the room and as he's walking out of the room, he looks at his own five fingers and he says, why can't you guys get organized like that? Well, let me ask you this morning, what is it that allows the church, in the words of Lucy, to become a force that is terrible to behold? What is it that allows the church of Jesus Christ to become a tool that can impact and change the world? We've been singing about changing the world, changing our hearts. What is there about the church that enables the church to have that kind of an impact. Now, to answer that question, we must even become more basic and ask the question, what is the church? Well, for some, the church is simply a building. Building composed of brick and mortar, beautiful shimmering buildings, windows, steeples, 
wonderful place to meet, just simply a place, a building. There's still others, the church is a denomination, it's a, a group of churches that gather together around a common doctrinal statement or commitment. And that draws them into fellowship together as a denomination. Still others view the church simply as a cultural influence to influence the culture toward God when society itself is breaking up and needs to have uh, the message of the gospel there to bring balance and cohesion to a society that has lost its way. And though all those definitions of the church are okay, they miss the point. Because the church, more than anything else, is not a building, it's not a denomination, it's not a cultural force, it is the people of God. And the people of God are the called out ones. We have been called out of darkness. We've been placed into God's marvelous light. We have been transformed by the power of the cross. We've been singing about that this morning. The power of the cross. Our lives have become completely changed because we have passed from death unto life because of our personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not that we are just not only the people of God, but we have been called to penetrate the culture in which we live. God does not save us so that we can form a holy huddle. There are a lot of churches today that they delight in just kind of being a holy huddle. They sit and pick the fuzz out of their belly button. It's amazing to me. If you would follow me around as I've been in various churches, there are some churches that are so closed in if a new person walked in the door, they call the deacons. It's amazing. We have forgotten about our great commandment vision and our great commission purpose. God calls us to make disciples. He doesn't call us to put in an hour or two on Sunday and say, well, I've done my job for the week. God calls us to penetrate the culture one of the reasons we're in such trouble as a nation is because the church has not been the church. We have just gotten real cozy and easy going and, you know, things are going to get worse before they get better. And we just dream of pie in the sky and the sweet by and by and let the world pass us by. That's not what God calls us to do. He calls us to strike against the spiritual indifference of a culture that has lost its way. And most churches today, that has become something of an oxymoron. We don't understand what it means to strike against the culture. We go along with the culture. We allow the culture to squeeze us into its mold. But as I study the early church... As I study the way in which these people in the first century responded to a pagan community, to a community that had crucified the Lord Jesus Christ and had thought they had finished off Christianity, I see that this church struck against that indifference. And you see this very clearly here in the book of Acts, that the early church is a growing church, uh, it is a church that is alive. It is a church that is experiencing growth. They grow up 
Acts 2.42, they have a new desire. They eagerly desire. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were concerned about growing spiritually and maturing and becoming fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. They were not content to just take, take uh, in... Uh, uh, take in all the stuff of the world. They... they they wanted to equip themselves to, to respond to the world because they knew the Word of God. And they were growing in their faith. They weren't stagnant. You know, so many times we can be in the church for such a long period of time that nothing faces us anymore. We just come and go. Nothing ever happens that really changes us. But the early church, we see that they had a new devotion and a passion for Jesus because remember at this moment, and what's so significant is that these early followers of Jesus Christ, the death of Christ was real to them. They had seen the Lord of glory crucified on that cross. And the gift of the Holy Spirit was new and they were experiencing things they had never before experienced. And so they were growing up. They were, were wanting to keep taking in the, the meat of the Word of God. The early church also grows together. They had everything in common. There was a unity. There was a camaraderie. There was a, a kinship that existed within this body of believers. They grow up. They grow together. They grow out uh, talks about the fact that the Lord is adding to their number in verse 47. Daily those who were being saved. They, people were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. There was evangelism. They were penetrating the unchurched culture. God was doing some great things. And they also grew numerically. They grew, notice, daily the Lord was adding to the church. You see, it's, it's, it's not abnormal for a church to grow. We ought not to be afraid of numbers, by the way. Numbers represent souls. We don't hear a lot today about the lostness. When was the last time you heard about the lostness of man? There are lost people in this community, like every other community in America today, less than... 5% of people are in church. When I started out 50 years ago as a pastor, more than 50% of the people in any given community were in church. We have somehow caved into the culture, and the church today is, oh, if it's convenient, we'll go. And now, in the aftermath of COVID, and everybody is able to you know, wash online, uh, bedside Baptists have grown in number. With Pastor Pillow, by the way. And we just are content to worship God in our PJs. Now, nothing wrong with worshiping God in your PJs. But do you realize that the body of Christ, we need each other. God calls us into community. We desperately need each other. And so the early church is a church that is a high-impact church, and they devote themselves to four specific pursuits. The first pursuit is they are in hot pursuit of practical teaching. It's very significant here that 
from the get-go, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. From the get-go, these early believers understood that they needed to get into the Word of God. They had an insatiable appetite for the truth of God's Word. They didn't have to be coaxed into Bible study. They didn't need to be coaxed to pray. They lived in an environment that had crucified the Lord Jesus Christ and thought they had nailed Christianity for good. And in the face of great opposition, these believers sense how much they need the Word of God and the practical teaching. And they soak up every word. The only way to grow in our lives, friends, is to uh, allow this book to become our life. Charles Spurgeon used to say, we need to be so full of the Word of God that our blood is bibline. We are so full of God's Word and God's truth. And that's what the Apostle Peter talked about in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2, that we need to be desiring the sincere milk of the Word so that we can grow and develop. And they had an insatiable appetite to know about Christ. They were interested in doctrine. You know, one of the things that scares me today is many of us don't even have the foggiest idea of what the doctrine of the church is. We, we see a bunch of words in a statement of faith, but do we really understand the doctrine of the church? Doctrinal preaching has lost its edge in America today. We need to get back to the basics, and this is exactly what happened in the life of the early church. They craved the practical teaching of the Word of God. And they desired that because that was a priority with the apostles. In fact, the apostles set the pattern. Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, their top priority was prayer and the ministry of the Word. And when we as pastors are making that as a priority, prayer and the ministry of the Word, instead of getting involved in all the other things that actually the lay folks are supposed to be involved in, taking care of the church and looking after the administrative matters of the church, when we as pastors give full attention to teaching and preaching and prayer and the study of the Word of God, that has an impact on the congregation. They too will begin to study the Word of God. Now, as you continue looking at the context here, you discover that this practical teaching had a threefold aim. A threefold aim. First of all, it's aimed at convincing the minds of the listeners. You see this in chapter 2, 36 and 38. It was teaching aimed at vital content, repentance, Christ, forgiveness, the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. The preaching was aimed to get people to think. To think. You see, we in America have become so accustomed to let others do our thinking for us. I mean, we have Siri and we have Alexa. And all we have to do is ask Siri or Alexa. We don't have to do any digging. We, we live in a world, especially the Christian world, where many of us have no longer challenged our minds to think. But this teaching and preaching, it was aimed to get people to think about the deep truths of the Word of God and to allow God's Word to change them. Number two, it was aimed at convicting their conscience. Notice verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. 
Somebody has said that the job of preaching is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And that's exactly what we have going on here. They hear this solid, clear teaching of the Word of God and their consciences. They begin to see themselves as they had never seen themselves before. They're cut to the heart. And some respond in faith and repentance, but also some do not, and they go their own way. And then number three, it is aimed at communicating the hope of the gospel. I love this. Look at verse 39, chapter 2. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all who call, uh, for all whom the Lord our God will call. It's powerful. Our world needs hope today. You take a look at what's happening in our culture. You take a look at what's happening in our world. The crime, the inflation, all the stuff that's going on today. Our world desperately needs hope. And the hope is not found in legislation. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one who is our hope. He is the one who gives us joy. He is the one that we need to cling to. And this message that they proclaim, it's a promise of great hope. That's the kind of hope that we need to share with our friends and those all around us. This type of teaching and preaching is desperately needed if we're to be a high-impact church for the glory of God. My friends, the days of easy believism are over. The days of cheap commitment are over. Doctrine must come before duty. Creed must come before conduct. And when we fail to teach doctrine, the teaching ministry of the church will be affected in a way in which many of God's people, instead of striking against the culture, just go along with the culture in which they live. You have a great history here of biblical teaching and preaching. Biblical preaching and teaching is what draws people to the church. Oftentimes we think, oh, we have to use all kinds of gimmicks and all kinds of ways to get people to come to church. Listen, what people want to hear more today than anything else is a word from God. They want to know what does the Bible say. They don't want a critique of the late night show. They want to understand what does God have to say to a culture today that has gone its own way. In fact, this is supported by a lot of data. Tom Rainer, a few years ago, wrote a very interesting book entitled Insights from the Unchurched. And people who came to church who had been unchurched, the thing that brought them was not the fancy production that happened on Sunday morning. It wasn't the student ministry or the kids ministry, all those kind of things. 97% of the people who responded say they came to the church because the Word of God was spoken. The Word of God is what draws us in. and We need to allow the truth of God's Word. These early church Followers of Jesus Christ, they had an insatiable appetite for the practical teaching of the Word of God. Number two, 
Not only did they devote themselves to practical teaching, but also to purposeful fellowship. It says, and to fellowship. Put a circle around the word fellowship. You know, few words are more abused uh, in the church than the word fellowship. Uh, We associate uh, rooms that we play in as fellowship halls. We don't have fellowship unless we have what? Donuts and coffee. Then we have fellowship. But when you study that word fellowship, it has nothing to do with food. It has nothing to do with buildings in which we play. It has everything to do with a sense of brotherhood, kinship, camaraderie, a sense of belonging. Do you realize... Many today, and the internet and COVID and all this kind of stuff has fed isolation. There are are so many people who want to break out of this isolation they've been in for such a long period of time. But they're looking for a place where they can build relationships, where they can get to know others and share life on life with others. This is what a beautiful thing is about this picnic we're having. It's time for us to be together, just enjoy each other. If you're a visiting guest, we'd love to have you to be part of it. Just come on. We'll figure out a way to get you another sandwich. There's plenty of food. I've never gone to a picnic where anybody's gone hungry. Have you? There's probably going to be more than enough. So we just want everyone to come. It's a sense of kinship, a sense of belonging. But when those early Christians got together, they were talking about Jesus. They were talking about how he had changed their life. They didn't spend their time just sipping coffee and talking about politics and the weather, talking about the big game down at JSU, you know, Jerusalem State University. They, they, they didn't spend their time in that kind of chatter They were just talking about Jesus. And the result is a spiritual bond. Have you discovered that when you connect with another believer, there's an immediate bond, there's a closeness that happens? It's amazing. That's one of the blessings Sandy and I have had as we have been in, this is our fifth interim now. We've been in churches in California, Nebraska, and Indiana, and now here in Michigan. And let me tell you, God's got his people all over the place. It's wonderful. It is just fabulous. I mean, and as soon as we we meet you, we understand that here is another body of Christ that has fallen in love with Jesus, and we want to nurture this this fellowship on a spiritual level that is so important and the world is looking for. Almost in every interim I've been in, when new people come, one of the first questions they say is, Pastor, do, do we have small groups in your church? We want to become part of a small group. That's where, the, where, where spiritual maturity and life and power come because of that knit, that spiritual bond. But not only is there a spiritual bond, that goes over into a material bond where when we're aware of people that have need in the body, notice they had everything in common, the Bible says, and they shared with one another as they had need. Now, some people say this was socialism or forced uh, kind of communism, that they had to do this. No, this was spontaneous. 
This, this sharing on a material level was something that was spontaneous as they grew in this spiritual fellowship and they became aware of, of those around them that had need. They didn't call the deacons or call the pastor and say, hey, the church needs to help out. No, they just did it themselves. There was a spontaneity that happened because they were so in love with Jesus and they were so in love with each other that they made sure that no one had any need. And if there was need, the body ministered to the body. This mutual concern extends even to the practical necessities of life. It was the conviction of the early church that no one member should have to go through a time of severe suffering without the body coming alongside and providing what was needed. And as the early church expressed this spiritual bond of fellowship and as they loved each other and as they ministered to each other, the world looked on and they had never seen anything like this. In fact, Celsus, a second century outspoken critic of the the church put it this way. He said these Christians love each other even before they get acquainted. No matter where they go, they're always jabbering about their Jesus in the laundry, in the market, wherever they go, they're just making others thirsty for Jesus. And I ask you this morning, are we making others thirsty for Jesus? That's what it's all about. This kind of fellowship, this, this is unique. You can't find it any place else than in the body of Christ. Practical teaching, purposeful fellowship. And then the third thing they went after was participative worship. Participative worship. Notice it says that Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts, verse 46. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. This breaking of bread together uh, reminds us of the communion service. And whenever the believers got together to partake of the Lord's Supper, they were reminded of what Christ had done for them. They could never get it out of their minds that he had suffered, that he had died. And whenever they would come together, they would do so to worship, to get their eyes upon him. Somebody's put it this way, God is always able to see us, but worship takes place when we see him. God desires our worship more than anything else. You see, we have come today not to please ourselves. If you've come to please yourself, you've missed the point of worship. We have come to please an audience of one. And that one is who? Jesus. We have come to please him. And when that occupies our minds, we will come to worship time with a sense of expectancy and joy. I don't know about you, but I could hardly wait to get here this morning. How about the rest of you? Or did you, oh man, I gotta go to church this morning. (sighs) Gotta put in my hour or two. I mean, once you get a glimpse of who Jesus is, you will look forward to these times of corporate worship where we can be together and we can celebrate the Lord's Supper together. 
And even when we're in our homes, in small groups, as this early church was, it was a time to focus their attention on the living God. And my friends, the church desperately needs to get their eyes on the living God. Too many of us live our lives horizontally. We're all taken up with all the stuff that goes on around us. And our gaze, our focus upon the living God becomes distracted. And what this early church did, they participated in worship. They just didn't sit. They celebrated. They sang heartily as unto the Lord. They served. You know, one of the ways in which we we worship is through our service. It's an act of worship. And my friend, one of the reasons why I (laughs) felt the call of God as a young man to go into ministry was through serving. Anytime there was an opportunity to serve, I volunteered. Service. Service is an act of worship. When we give our tithes and our offerings in the offering boxes, it's an act of worship. You see, worship is participative. When we pray together, when we seek God's face together, that is an act of worship. And so these first century believers, they participated. They They just didn't sit on the sidelines and watch others worship. They were participating. They participated in worship together. And then lastly, a high-impact church is a church that focuses on proactive prayer. By proactive, I mean the early church doesn't wait for a crisis to pray. They are a praying church. They practice the presence of the Lord every day. It's interesting that as you go back into the first few chapters of the book of Acts, you see that the church is born in prayer. In verse 42 of chapter 2, they eagerly devote themselves to prayer. In times of crisis, we find the early church on its knees. When problems came, they didn't panic. They didn't throw up their hands. They prayed when Peter and John were arrested and in jail. They didn't panic. They prayed like crazy. Acts chapter 12 and verse 5, when Peter's in prison, prayers made without ceasing for him to God, and Peter is released and he comes to the prayer meeting where they're praying for him, and they don't believe what they see. How many times we pray like that? We pray, but there's no expectancy that God's going to answer. We just mouth words. But this was a church that poured out their hearts. They were diligent in prayer. Prayer, mighty prayer, is the characteristic feature of a high-impact church. Dwight L. Moody, the great evangelist, puts it this way: Behind every great work of God is a bended knee. The danger that every 21st century church faces is that when we go through difficulty, we tend to program more and pray less. Oh, if we just start this program, if we just do this, if we just start this new venture, then that's going to help us. We program and program, but we do not pray. 
And when we do not pray, we have no power. And when we have no power, we won't have the ability to even fulfill the programs that we want to do. Prayer, prayer is absolutely essential. Without prayer, the body of Christ is weak. But when we pray, when we seek God, He does things for us that we could never, ever imagine. John Wesley, the revivalist, put it this way, Give me a hundred preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. God does nothing but in answer to prayer. God's at work here at Calvary. I praise him for that. You've seen some incredible answers to prayer over the last several weeks and months. God's not done. He wants to do exceedingly beyond what any of us can imagine at this time. But it's all dependent upon our prayers. I want to encourage every single one of you, if you don't have prayer partners, call a couple of your good friends and say, would you be my prayer partner? And begin praying together. Form triplets of prayer where you're praying for each other. There's something about prayer that moves the hand of God in mighty ways. So, this early church, they were a high-impact church. They focused on preaching and teaching the Word of God. This spiritual and material fellowship that they had, this uniqueness that they had, this participative worship and proactive prayer. Some of you are saying, well, why should we be a proactive church or a a high-impact church? What are the results? What are the results? You've let us know what a high-impact church looks like, but what are the results of a high-impact church? Well, I'm going to give you three. Number one, instead of impotence, there will be impact. Look at this, verse 43. Everyone was filled with a sense of awe, and many wonders and miracles were done by the apostles. The outside world was amazed and God's people were amazed at what he was doing among them. Instead of little power, there was much power. There was a sense of awe. When was the last time you left a service and felt a sense of awe? Because God showed up. See, that's what's going to bring me back next Sunday is God's going to show up. And what God's going to do for us next Sunday is much more than what he's going to do for us even this morning. But there is a sense of awe because people are focused on the power of God. Number two, instead of criticism, there is commendation. It doesn't take much to criticize. In churches today that are going through difficulty, one of the main problems is a critical spirit. That was not the case in the book of Acts. Notice verse 47, they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. I want to encourage us to always look for the best in others. 
Look for the best in others. Look for ways in which you can help others succeed in their walk with Jesus. Because when they're growing and when they're maturing, it not only is an encouragement to them, it's an encouragement to you. But we need to lay aside a critical spirit. Look for opportunities to say thank you. What about these precious adults that are down there in the nursery right now? Taking care of our kids. Have you said thank you? Have you said, man, I really appreciate your ministry. Look for ways to say thank you. Let others know how much you appreciate them. And then lastly, instead of artificial artificiality, there is uncontaminated authenticity. In other words, these people are so genuine and so authentic that others want to be around them. They make Christianity attractive. Are we making Christianity attractive? Are others being drawn to Jesus because they see Jesus in us? And when that happens, the church will grow. Not because of some kind of a gimmick or some kind of a big program that we're putting on, but because people are drawn to those that are authentic Christ followers. James Reed, in one of his books, tells a story about an African-American Salvation Army officer who was kneeling at the altar at the church in England where William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, came to faith in Jesus Christ. And this dear brother was on his face before God and he was praying, Oh God, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. As you blessed William Booth and used him as a change agent in England. Oh God, do it again. Do it right now. And friends, that's my prayer for East Bay Calvary Church. That God would do it again. That God would move in this place in ways that we have never ever imagined. That we would humble ourselves before Him and allow Him to transform us into a first century church that has a 21st century impact. And so I'm going to invite all of you that can. I'm going to kneel down right now And if you can kneel in your pew, I'm going to ask every single one of you, if you can kneel, to just get on your knees before God. And we're going to ask God to do what only God can do. If you can get on your knees, there's something about humbling ourselves before Him. God wants to do a new work here at East Bay Calvary. But it only happens as we get on our face before God. Father in heaven, how we love you.
how we adore you. You are our Heavenly Father. You have planted East Bay Calvary Church on this hill to have an impact on this community in ways that we could never ever imagine. And Lord, for whatever reasons, we've taken our eyes off you. We've allowed the enemy to sow discord in the body. We've allowed the enemy to cause us to mistrust each other. We've allowed things to happen that break your heart. And so, Lord, we humble ourselves right now and we say, Lord, we're so sorry. We want to be a high-impact church. We want to be a church that lifts up Jesus. We want to be a church that sees others come into the kingdom of God, that has an impact that we can't even imagine right now. So, Lord, as you used William Booth and helped him to have a significant impact on the whole nation of England, Lord, use us, every single one of us, right now in our places of business, in our homes, wherever we go today, may we seek to make others thirsty for you. And may you deepen our love for you. And may we all fall more deeply in love with Jesus. This we pray in his holy name. Amen. Amen. As we leave today, let us go forth in the strong name of Jesus. He is the head of the church. We are not. He is our king. Let's make him known. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and that sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be with each one of you now and forevermore. Amen. Good morning and Maranatha, lo he comes. Have a great day in Jesus.